remember the moment at about the age of 14, I think, when I lost my belief in God. Up until that time, I had been committed to Christianity. At the age of 12, if I remember correctly, I had taken communion classes and become baptized. I read the King James Bible, uncoerced, believe it or not. I was deeply and naively committed to the belief that Jesus of Nazareth had given his life on the cross for my sins and that heaven awaited me, so long as I had faith in the fact that he had done so and asked him for forgiveness. But I've always been something of a thinker, so it was impossible for me to just leave well enough alone. I had to wrestle with the moral and metaphysical implications of my Christian worldview. How could God have existed forever? If God is the first cause of the universe, then what is the first cause of God? Etc., etc. The problem of free will in the context of an omniscient God really tied me in knots. If God already knows before I'm born what, whether I will do as he commands and be welcome to heaven, then what is my life for? How is it justified to send humanity to hell by the billions if there is no other way that things could have gone? Didn't God know the damn snake would tempt Eve and ruin paradise? Who put a fucking serpent in the garden? Why is a perfect God angry and disappointed at the inevitable outcome of his own intentional creation? Then there were the inconsistencies evident between science and my religion. I was being told that reason, that most sacrosanct of human capacities, the means to make sense of things, was itself a sin. The cognitive dissonance was disturbing. So when it all clicked into place that Christianity was wrong, it was a huge relief. The phenomenon of the Creator God had been eliminatively reduced to myth. The universe was still full of unknowns to me, but at least it wasn't a confused and dystopian nightmare. Without the threat of hell, I think it would have been much more difficult to sustain the dissonance. Incidentally, in recent years, I've begun to appreciate the value of some of the biblical stories. Not as scientific or historical claims, but as useful and often truthful exposés of human character and society. I think the work of Jordan Peterson has helped a lot with this, as he might put it with rescuing God the Father from the bottom of the sea. I am grateful to Peterson for that, because I think there is a baby to be found in the proverbial bathtub, even if it isn't the baby Jesus. I've always liked to think about the intention of the story in Genesis about the tree that bears the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. It seems that in that story, the ancient Hebrews were wrestling with the first emergence of self-consciousness, awareness of awareness, or meta-consciousness. The first humans gained freedom of will, but at great cost. The truth had set them free, but now they had to be responsible for themselves, to toil in the field, to suffer during childbirth, to know their own mortality. They were no longer like children, having lost their innocence. It seems to me that believing the story to be a literal account of original sin misses the point entirely. Rather, it is an allegory of emerging into human consciousness, of evolving from the innocent pleasure and brutality of our ancestry into the culpable moral and immoral human condition. After losing my Christian faith, I dabbled in speculative nonsense for a few years. Astrology and the occult, belief in ghosts or pagan deities. I considered studying comparative religion when I was first going to community college. 
My interest went away once I learned to think critically and skeptically. I had found science. But there has been some measure of continuity in my life. I've often thought that if I had retained a conviction in the truth of Christianity, I would have gone on to study theology. Instead, I became convinced that what I am, the mind of a human being, could be discovered in neurobiology. So I became a neuroscientist. The deeper motivation, the obsession with discovering truth, has persisted. I have several ambitions for this podcast. The first is that I get to sort out my thinking on topics related to the brain and consciousness so that I might gain ground on the hard problem. A second is that I can become a better communicator. Ultimately, I'd like to become a good teacher and speaker. I make no claim to either at this point, so hopefully I make progress as this project goes on. Third, I would very much like to connect with leading thinkers across a number of fields of study that might bear fruit in answering some of my many questions. A lot of brilliant philosophers and scientists have been having compelling discussions online, and in time I aspire to join in the conversation. And finally, if fate allows, it would be good if there were an audience for this thing. In the first episode, I presented some prior assumptions that I think are necessary to put the puzzle of consciousness together. In brief, I assume that the material world exists, that I exist, that other conscious beings exist, that consciousness arises from the brain, and that it does so by physical means. Let's accept those assumptions and get to work explaining the most perplexing phenomenon in the known universe, shall we? What will our theory need to explain? Let's start with what human consciousness is like. First, consciousness is a unified composition of contents. Consciousness always has content. This is what distinguishes consciousness from non-consciousness. Even if you are aware of total confusion of what you are experiencing, the particular quality of that confusion of thoughts or sensations is content. Any given experience contains lots of different identifiable contents, a visual scene composed of objects arranged in space, sounds and smells, thoughts and feelings. From a subjective point of view, all of these occur in a common unified experience. We know that auditory stimuli and visual stimuli, and language comprehension and feelings of pressure or vibration on the skin, are all processed by different networks in the cerebral cortex. Gerald Edelman describes the arrangement of these networks as mappings because they tend to be topographical. The cortex is very complex, but it is orderly, with hierarchical processing of incoming data streams. Ultimately, these data streams must constitute or converge upon a common structure. Our theory will need to establish how different contents are produced and show how all of the content-producing networks establish a single, unified experience. Second, conscious contents are specific and meaningful. A certain sound is different from another sound. A certain thought or feeling is different from any other thought or feeling. Green is different from blue, etc. In the scheme of conscious contents, some things are more alike than others. Green and blue are more similar than, say, green and sharp pain. Philosophers refer to the greenness of green, or the specific feeling of a specific pain, as qualia. There are lots of different qualia that we can experience. Qualia have meaning from our point of view, even if we don't have a word or a phrase that we can easily translate the meaning into. 
Notice that we describe colors and sounds and smells in language by relating them to things in the material world. It's the color of the sun or the sky or of grass. It smells like cinnamon or wood smoke. If I describe a smell to you in that way, I am making the implicit assumption that you experience the same qualia that I do given the same stimulus. This is pretty reasonable as an assumption since we are both human beings with similar brains and receptor systems. But in principle, there is nothing about the physical thing cinnamon which implies the qualitative thing that I experience as smell of cinnamon. My brain mediates between the material world and my conscious experiences. Our theory will need to explain where these different qualia come from. What gives them their meaning? What physical process or arrangement is responsible for these qualia? What mechanism distinguishes the neural processes that produce pleasant qualia from those that produce unpleasant qualia? Third, conscious contents exist from a point of view. I experience what this body is exposed to, but not what some other body is exposed to. Receptors situated in the retina of these eyes communicate to areas of this brain, which has consequences in me, in my mind, my consciousness. We can dispense here with any notion of dualism, the idea that there are two kinds of worlds coexisting, the world of physical stuff and the world of mental stuff. If mind stuff were not part of the physical world, then it could not be affected by physical occurrences. Straight away we can notice that the physical world has consequences in the mind. That can be pro proven to you right now, since you're hearing my voice as pressure waves in this moment. And the contents of my speech are producing contents in your conscious mind. That means that the sounds I make by physical means have a degree of causality on your consciousness. If that is not taking place in common physical universe, then I don't know what is. In any case, conscious contents always occur from a point of view, both in space and in time. Isn't it weird to imagine that the present moment you are experiencing is only present to you from your point of view? You have the sense of the passage of time at a certain rate. Is that the real speed of time passing or just what it seems like from your point of view? From your point of view, particular contents have meanings that they do not from an objective point of view. An example of this occurs in many visual illusions where your point of view is unreliable. Our theory will need to show how the subjective point of view comes about. Fourth, consciousness is temporally continuous. Recall that Searle defined consciousness as, quote, those states of sentience and awareness that typically begin when we awake from a dreamless sleep and continue until we go to sleep again, or fall into a coma, or die, or otherwise become unconscious, unquote. Moments, or individual experiences do not have borders in time. One seems to flow into another. This is necessary for you to understand my speech right now. Your experience is not a sequence, one after another of discrete mental moments. If it were, you would only be hearing an instant of sound, and you couldn't comprehend an entire word, let alone a sentence. So the human brain must be retaining aspects of the recent past as well as the present. This is probably accomplished by what Edelman calls re-entry. This feedback sig signaling might maintain traces of previous network activities to account for working memory. Our theory should explain the mechanism for working memory. Finally, consciousness is limited 
and coherent. At any given time, most things that could be conscious are not. Notice the feel of your feet. Were you feeling them before? The stimulus hasn't changed, but your experience has. Consciousness apparently has a limited bandwidth, and our attention to different aspects of our experiences seems to bring forward or amplify specific qualia at the expense of others. Furthermore, only a single interpretation of contents exists from our point of view at any one time. This is well demonstrated by visual illusions, such as the Necker cube. You've probably seen this line drawing of a transparent box. When you look at the drawing, you will see either the lower square as the front of a three-dimensional cube coming forward, or you'll see the upper square as the front. If you continue to look, the image will eventually reverse, and you will see the other conformation of the three-dimensional cube. But you will never see the superposition of both at the same time. A theory of consciousness should provide a mechanism for this and explain the limitations that occur in our experiences. The essential characteristics of consciousness that I have described may include peculiarities of human consciousness. Are all of them necessary for consciousness per se? Let's review the features of human consciousness in brief. Human consciousness is a unified composition of contents. The contents are specific and meaningful, and they exist from a point of view. Human consciousness is continuous in time. It is limited, and it is coherent. The world we see in consciousness is not the world as it is. What we have, the contents we perceive from a subjective point of view, is a coherent illusion. This is easy to realize with conceptual contents, like thoughts and feelings, but it's also true for perceptual contents. We do not see objects in the world. We do not hear sounds in the world. We do not smell aromas in the world. Suppose you look at an object in your environment. You point your eyes at a tree. You do not see a tree in the material world, but you are seeing a tree, a representation of a tree, presumably in large part the representation of a tree that seems to be there in front of you is a reliable one. There is something specific you are perceiving, the tree, and you can even examine its parts and perceive further details. The branching of its limbs, the textures of its bark, the shifting colors and motions of its leaves as they flutter in the breeze, the play of shadows upon its surfaces. You might be thinking that what I mean is that you are seeing specific wavelengths of light reflected off the surface of the tree, its branches, its leaves being focused by the lens of the eye onto photoreceptor cells in the retina. The situation is far stranger than that. You aren't seeing wavelengths of light either. Just as the tree standing out there in the material world is composed of matter obeying physical laws, so are the electromagnetic waves bouncing around in real space and obeying physical laws. Cells in the retina are indeed responding to photons of the appropriate electromagnetic waves to to excite them, all of this really occurring in the physical world, but the retina is not a component of the conscious brain. If we plucked out your eyes, you would cease to acquire would-be visual data about the outside world. Your representations based on those data would be impossible for the visual brain to construct. In short, the retina and its photoreceptors are necessary to see based on the electromagnetic radiation in your environment, but they are not sufficient to produce conscious contents. 
The retinal ganglion cells are communicating to the rest of the brain, including those components from which conscious contents emerge in the form of action potentials. Those action potentials influence their target neurons to fire further action potentials, and those influence their target neurons, etc. Returning to the example of the real tree in the real world, you can touch its trunk with your fingers and feel the contours of its bark, and the contours you feel will agree with the contours you see as you observe what you're doing, so the experience is coherent. But those feelings on your skin aren't happening on your skin, and you are not feeling the bark of the tree. Rather, receptors near the surface of your fingers respond to different physical stimuli and fire action potentials that enter your spinal cord where they influence the firing of action potentials in neurons situated there which send their signals upward to your brain. Is that a bird that you can hear tweeting somewhere above, hidden among the fluttering leaves? You aren't hearing a bird. You aren't hearing pressure waves that vibrate the hair cells in your inner ear either. Those cells do not produce consciousness, but rather they communicate to the brain by means of action potentials. So you aren't seeing a tree over there in the material world. You aren't feeling its trunk out here at the tips of your fingers, and you aren't hearing the bird song up above you in its branches. All of it is happening within you, within your mind. Your mind encompasses this representative space you perceive. Again, I am not suggesting, as the idealist might, that there is no tree with its branches and leaves, or that there is no little bird hopping about within. Recall that my first assumption is that the material world really exists, and the brain of a living human animal is a real physical thing existing in the world. Events in the material world have causal power on conscious contents produced in that brain, but only through the limited domains of the receptors that human animals have evolved. So electromagnetic radiation in the environment, within a tight range of wavelengths, has causal power on the action potentials produced by cells in the retina. Pressure waves in the environment, within a tight range of frequencies, have causal power on action potentials produced by cells in the inner ear, and so on. All conscious contents must come from arrangements of action potentials. The world, the material world, does not look like anything does not feel like anything, does not sound like anything. Sights and feelings and sounds exist only in minds. In the human mind, the tree and its avian occupant look and feel and sound in the form of a coherent, continuous, unified composition of meaningful, qualitative contents, qualia, such as the flickering yellows and greens of the leaves, the rough feel of the bark, and the delightful trill of the bird's chirpy melody. The conscious mind does not control what it perceives. The contents come and go according to the dynamics of action potentials communicated among neurons in the thalamocortical system. Certain neurons networked in some critical way. If the experience of the scene I've been describing were occurring in a dream rather than in the real material world, wouldn't it share those same qualia? Does that not imply that the configuration of action potentials among the neurons of the relevant networks is sufficient to produce the experience, even without data from the real world? Furthermore, experiments performed in surgical patients have shown that qualia emerge from direct stimulation of cortical tissue. Why do the qualia we experience have the particular character they do? That exploration will have to wait for the next episode.
Jordan Peterson admonishes us to pursue what is meaningful. Well, the problem of consciousness is meaningful to me in at least two distinct ways. First, I'm on a mission to understand my place in the universe. What am I and how have I come to be? If this is my self-found purpose, then it is the meaning I have laid out for myself. The second is that the problem of consciousness is itself the mystery of how meaning comes to exist at all. Consciousness gives meaning to phenomena. If a tree falls in a forest and no one is around to hear it, does it make a sound? It makes pressure waves, sure, but a sound is something heard. It occurs only in a mind capable of accommodating it, and it occurs only from a point of view capable of appreciating it. Thus, consciousness adds something, maybe everything that matters to an otherwise cold, no, not even cold, universe.